Indie Votes is a nonpartisan campaign of the Center of Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, and the Constitutional Studies minor at the University of Notre Dame that promotes voter education, registration, and mobilization. Indie Votes fosters conscientious engagement in political and civic life among students. Welcome back to our new podcast, Pizza Pod and Politics, a virtual initiative in place of our signature event, Pizza Pop and Politics, during the time of COVID-19. Our goal is to continue educating students post-election about different political issues from a nonpartisan lens with the hopes of fostering a more conscientious and informed student electorate. Today, we will be focusing on free speech and free press in the age of social media. Hi everyone, I'm Rachel. I'm one of the co-chairs of ND Votes. I'm a science pre-professional studies major with a minor in constitutional studies and science technology and values. And today I'm joined by our chair for community engagement, Patrick. Hello everyone, really glad to join today. My name is Patrick Imany. I'm the chair for community engagement for ND Votes. And I'm a junior studying political science, minoring in PPE, the Hesper program in constitutional studies. Really glad to join you today, Rachel. Awesome. So here to shed light on the freedom of speech aspect of our conversation today is Matt Hall, Professor of Political Science and Law at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Hall's current research explores the role of ideological bias, small group dynamics, and individual differences in shaping procedural justice, trust, and legitimacy in legal, political, and business organizations. His earlier work focused on empirical legal studies and American political institutions. His first book, The Nature of Supreme Court Power, examined the influence of Supreme Court rule on the behavior of state and private actors and won the C. Herman Pritchett Award for the best book on law and courts from the American Political Science Association. His second book, What Judges Want, Goals and Personality on the U.S. Supreme Court, explored the role of personality traits in shaping the behavior of Supreme Court justices. In 2019, he won the Reverend Edmund P. Joyce CSC Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching from the University of Notre Dame. As former students of Professor Hall's Civil Liberties and Civil Rights course ourselves, we're thrilled to welcome Professor Hall to Pizza Pod in Politics. Thank you. And we're very grateful for the ungraded nature of this podcast. <laughs> also central to the question of free speech and social media is freedom of the press and how this protects those forms of media, which the founders could not have in their day imagined. Here to shed some light on free press in the age of social media is Professor Richard Jones, the Walter H. Annenberg Edmund P. Joyce Director of the John W. Gallivan Program in Journalism, Ethics, and Democracy at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Jones joins us today with over 20 years of experience as a journalist, including a decade at the New York Times. As a reporter, he wrote about topics as varied as politics, criminal justice, the New Jersey legislature, and the New York He was also nominated for a Pulitzer by editors at the Times for a year-long investigation into the failings of New Jersey's child welfare system. A two-time winner of the New York Times Publishers Award, his reporting has been honored with awards from numerous organizations, including the Pennsylvania Newspaper Association, the Press Club of Long Island, the New York Association of Black Journalists, and the Education Writers Association. We're very glad to welcome Professor Jones to Pizza Pod in Politics. Thank you so much. So great to be here. Thank you both for joining us. We'll focus on free speech first, followed by free press, but please feel free to jump in with any comments or questions at any time. To start us off, Professor Hall, we'd love to discuss the protections laid out in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution for the freedom of speech. What are they and what is slash isn't included as speech in this protection? The First Amendment provides broad protection for speech, broader than that provided in most Western democracies. All government actors are generally prohibited from prescribing or prescribing speech 
based on the content or viewpoint expressed. And the freedom of speech even protects some conduct if the conduct is targeted by the government based on its expressive content. But the Supreme Court has never adopted an absolutist approach to protecting freedom of speech. Instead, the court has adopted a categorical approach, carving out several categories of speech as excluded from First Amendment protection. These excluded categories include true threats, fighting words, incitement to imminent unlawful action, defamation, obscenity, and child pornography. And even if speech does not fall into one of these categories, the government may still prohibit the speech if the government has a compelling interest to do so and the law is narrowly tailored to serve that interest. And of course, the freedom of speech only limits government actors. It has no application to private actors. On that note, some people think the freedom of speech should extend to the private sector. Why do they think this? And are there any constitutional claims to this type of protection? The Supreme Court has applied the freedom of speech to private actors in a few very rare instances. For example, in the 1946 case Marsh versus Alabama, the court ruled that free speech protections could apply to a company-owned town. That is, an entire town that was completely owned by a corporation, including the streets and even the sidewalks, because the town's business district had been opened for general use by the public and therefore effectively functioned as a public forum. In the 1970s, the court briefly extended this logic to private shopping malls, uh, but then reversed that decision a few years later. But I should emphasize, these are rare exceptions to the general rule. The First Amendment does not generally apply to private actors. Nonetheless, as you said, many people speak as if private actors, such as social media companies, are bound in some way by the First Amendment. I suspect that that misperception arises because our society holds several values that are similar to the constitutional freedom of speech. For example, universities value academic freedom and social media companies value open discourse. But these values are distinct from free speech in important ways. The freedom of speech, for example, protects racism, pornography, and abstract advocacy of unlawful conduct. But private universities and corporations are obviously under no obligation to tolerate such speech. Another term that often arises when we're talking about this conversation is the definition of hate speech. Does the Constitution say anything about that? There is no constitutional definition of hate speech. In fact, the court has repeatedly rejected the claim that hate speech is one of those excluded categories that I mentioned earlier to which the First Amendment doesn't apply. But the court does recognize so-called fighting words as a category of speech that's excluded from First Amendment protection. Fighting words are words spoken to another person in a face-to-face -face confrontation that tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. And, and there is some overlap between the legal category of fighting words and terms that might commonly be labeled as hate speech. So how do those definitions or standards for hate speech change when we look at 21st century social media platforms, such as Twitter, for example? Well, private companies like Twitter are welcome to develop their own codes of speech uh, for their platforms, including limitations on speech that they might label as hate speech. But it is up to each company to define their own standards in order to create a space that caters to their users. Early in former President Trump's term, an appellate court ruled that the president could not block other accounts on Twitter due to their political views. Does that case have any implications for the future of free speech litigation about social media? 
I have no doubt that it will. The ruling suggests that when a government actor uses a social media platform to communicate with the public, uh, like the president using his Twitter account, their account is transformed into a public forum subject to free speech rules. And so uh, this will be increasingly relevant as more and more government actors make use of social media. Got it. So the courts have said something about uh, President Trump blocking people on Twitter, but on the subject of him recently being blocked from social media platforms following the events of the insurrection on January 6th, does that removal have any constitutional implications for free speech? It's impossible for me to predict, but I doubt that Trump's Twitter ban will have any effect on the constitutional interpretation of free speech because as a private company, the First Amendment simply doesn't apply to Twitter's decision, or at least it wouldn't apply unless the court reimagines its jurisprudence in this area in important ways. However, there will undoubtedly be political consequences to that choice. Uh, Right-wing activists and politicians have had great success in advancing the narrative that they are being silenced and denied freedom of speech. On their face, many of these claims are simply bizarre. Right-wing media commentators regularly claim that they're being silenced while speaking on one of the highest rated news programs in the country, or one congressperson regularly wears a face mask claiming that she's being censored while she freely speaks on the floor of Congress uh, and her speech is broadcast on every major news network. So any claim that Twitter is violating the First Amendment has no real legal basis, but such a minor inconsistency will do little to blunt the effectiveness of these claims as a form of political rhetoric. Got it. It seems interesting to me that uh, you know the courts have been able to hold that the present social media is something like a public forum, but then that you know that public forum could be so immediately uh, removed by a private company. That seems sort of you know without a good non-online analog. Do you have any thoughts on that? It is. It creates a bizarre contradiction that on the one hand this is a private space controlled by a private company, and yet it's also deemed a public forum. The best way I can reconcile those views is to frame it as a question of who is the actor making the decision? And so when Trump using his account is blocking people, he is the government actor. And as a government actor is bound by the first amendment, when Twitter decides to ban Trump from the platform, they are a private actor. And as a private actor, they have no responsibility uh, to the first amendment. So the analog might be, were Trump still allowed to have his Twitter account, he would now be free to block people because he's no longer a a government actor. Got it. So Section 230 also often comes up when talking about free speech of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. It says that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider effectively protecting social media platforms like Twitter from being held accountable for what users of their platform say or do. Do you think this has a place in this conversation? It certainly has a place in the conversation. When social media platforms were initially created, it was unclear how they would fit into the legal landscape that governs publishing. Traditional media platforms, such as newspapers, magazines, or television programs, are responsible for speech on their platforms, even if the company is simply sharing the views of others. As a result, they might be legally culpable for defamatory, obscene, or threatening speech. Such a rule is understandable for a traditional outlet because the owners of those platforms regularly exercise editorial control of their content. The newspaper decides what goes in the newspaper uh, almost 100% of the time. 
In contrast, social media companies rarely produce or edit the content on their platforms. Initial court rulings suggested that social media platforms would be culpable if and only if they attempted to exercise editorial control. As you can imagine, that rule created a perverse incentive for these platforms uh, to abandon any attempt to regulate content, because if they tried to edit or regulate in any way, they'd be held legally responsible. But if they just abandoned any effort to regulate or edit, well, then they wouldn't have any legal responsibility and they'd avoid uh, any, any lawsuits. Therefore, Section 230 relieved the social media companies of that responsibility to avoid that perverse incentive. But there are obviously costs to this regulatory approach. The rule essentially trusts social media companies to police themselves. So I expect that this issue will be a key part of our national conversation as we debate whether and how to regulate content on social media. Section 230 is always a really interesting issue in my opinion because it seems like folks on the American left and right who are critics of Section 230 have very different ideas of, of what consequences it would have. Uh, sometimes people on the right critique it because uh, they think getting rid of it would cause uh, companies to have to stop censoring in their perception, whereas critics on the left sometimes think that it'll make social media companies more responsible for and therefore more willing to take down false information propagated on the right. So in your opinion, do you think one side or another has a, you know, a, bet, a more accurate assessment of what the implications of repealing 230 would be? And uh, what implications do you think that has for like our political or legal debate? I can't say, I, I can't predict clearly what would be the result of repealing Section 230. And as you said, there are a lot of different, differing opinions on that. And part of it is because we simply have no good analogs in history. We're, we're creating new uh, realities as we deal with these technologies. And so it's difficult to predict what the law will do. I, I would say that the one thing you can trust is that for-profit companies will protect their profits. And if Section 230 is repealed, it's not clear to me what steps these companies might take in response, what the legal landscape might look like if lawsuits started being filed, but one thing I can predict, these companies will protect their financial interests no matter what. And that is gonna take precedence in their decision. Thanks. Thank you, Professor Hall, for your extensive background on free speech. We're now going to move on to talking about free press with Professor Jones. Our first question is how the freedom of press protects journalists and media institutions and how this might be different from other countries. Well, first and foremost, uh, I think it really is what Professor Hall alluded to. It's the texture and comprehensiveness of the First Amendment. A lot of what the founders said is really open to interpretation, and it's rife with contradictions and dichotomies, right? How can these men who spoke so eloquently and bravely about freedom uh, have uh, bought into enslavement of, of people, their fellow human beings? Uh, but if you look at the first five words in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law. It's really powerful. It's very simple and straightforward. Obviously, as Professor Hall said, the courts have found that some speech isn't protected, fighting words, obscenity, et cetera. But those cases are fairly narrow and the default position is toward openness and the free flow of information. The second piece I think is that American journalists enjoy protections that aren't necessarily found widely elsewhere in the rest of the world. For example, most states in this country have statutes in place called shield laws and they protect journalists from being compelled to divulge the sources of their information. And when you think about stories like Watergate or some of the more recent revelations about NSA surveillance of Americans after 
these are things we would not know about but for anonymous sources. So that is a, a key, key protection for, for journalists and something that we have here in this country that folks don't have elsewhere. I think the third big factor when talking about the difference uh, are really the expectations of news consumers here in the States. Um, you know, one survey last year found that the majority of people in Europe and the Americas feel it's important to have freedom of the press, uh, including 80% of the respondents here in the States. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, really despite the kind of antipathy that we hear about with regard to the press, Americans still believe very deeply in its, in its importance and, and that it should be free. One question we have is, as social media has evolved in the last two decades, what questions have arisen about how far the freedom of the press extends? A lot of these questions center around who is a journalist and what constitutes journalism. And the courts have really struggled with that question a bit, right? There have been a couple of interesting cases in, in the past decade or so that have sought to apply a definition. Um, you know, one case in Oregon, uh, uh, the ruling issued. Uh, indicated that journalists should have some kind of formal training or education uh, or be affiliated with newspapers or broadcast outlets in some way. That to some ears felt a bit too narrow, uh, including mine, uh, because it does exclude another class of, of journalists like bloggers. And again, folks we may not be able to anticipate who may develop in, in the future. Um, another court in New Hampshire applied a broader definition, which, which seemed to suggest that anyone uh, could potentially be considered a journalist. And I think that's uh, where things, you know, we want to lean more in that direction. Uh, I think it's, it's better that the courts stay out of that, that whole question because it is a real uh, uh, slippery slope to go from defining who is and who isn't a journalist to what can and what you cannot publish to, again, taking steps to intervene with the press, which we don't want to see happen. Would you consider certain forms of social media a form of press while others aren't? Or you think the courts should stay out of that question altogether? I, I, I tend to think that it depends on the user. I think social media has the potential to be a form of the press. Uh, but again, generally, the courts have taken the right position by uh, staying out of these questions. And, and I hope they continue to do that. Not everything that you see on social media is necessarily journalistic. But what we often see there are users committing acts of journalism, right? Here's a photograph that I've taken of a demonstration. Here's a, some fact that I've discovered I'm sharing with the rest of the world. So while it may not be a fully formed piece of journalism that's been vetted and applies the ethical standards that we have, uh, it is um, worthy of being called a piece of journalism. So we wanna uh, continue to promote and encourage that kind of work, certainly. Great. We're wondering how the, the newfound or newly described phenomenon of quote unquote fake news relates to the kind of constitutional protections afforded to free press, in your opinion. You know, in, in two ways. Um, one is with regard to defamation laws. Um, it is very, very difficult, as Professor Hall will tell you, for public figures to bring uh, successful claims for libel and slander. Uh, and, and usually politicians are uh, the subject of, of many of those stories uh, regarding fake news. I, which is a term I hate to use. I, I encourage my students to use disinformation or misinformation. It's much more accurate. Fake news has become so politicized these days. I try to, try to avoid it as much as possible. Um, and the second piece uh, is that while false statements are not necessarily considered protected speech, there is an exception for false statements about the government uh, for which there's usually given a lot of latitude. Uh, and again, when you talk about uh, misinformation and disinformation and what's been happening over the past several years, uh, you can see that there's a, a some, some openings there for people to, to certainly walk through as they put these stories out online. I'm glad you brought up uh, the issue of defamation uh, because there have been a couple 
defamation suits recently uh, against certain television networks post-election by election-related companies such as Dominion or, or Smartmatic that have seen their reputations being harmed by disinformation that's been pushed out about uh, the 2020 presidential election. So I wanted to ask you for your journalistic perspective on this. Do you see advantages or disadvantages with using lawsuits like this to try to keep disinformation in line? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I think ideally, uh, you know, the, the, the leaders and the stewards of these platforms uh, would recognize that they have, you know, a moral duty, an ethical duty, a journalistic duty to, to avoid uh, promoting misinformation and disinformation. Um, I, again, I, I think that whenever you begin to, to move into guidelines, regulations, the courts, uh, it becomes uh, you know, such a fuzzy area and such a problematic area in lots of ways. Um, again, I, I, I think that as much as possible, uh, we want to move from a place where we can make sure that we're all on the same page in terms of, of what it means to, to be the steward of one of these organizations and, and, and to recognize that responsibility so it doesn't have to go into the courts. That's a great answer, and that really plays into the idea of journalism, ethics, and democracy. <laughs> Thank you. They're all linked, and, and uh, you, know, you, you mentioned uh, the, the name of our program, which is quite long, and, and uh, my children get a real kick out of that when I tell them my title. I'm like, you have to say two guys' names before you say your own, you know? but uh, the idea of, of journalism, ethics, and democracy uh, being uh, interconnected in that way is, is a key piece of, of what our program is all about. So do social media companies have a duty to police their platforms for this kind of misinformation, in your opinion? Absolutely, they do. And, and again, on those, those fronts that I mentioned, I think it's, it's, a, it's a moral duty, um, it's an ethical duty, and it is a journalistic duty. With regard to the last piece, you know, some of these new platforms that have emerged, again, they've found themselves in the position where they have a broader audience you know, with one tweet uh, than the New York Times used to have in its entire Sunday paper, you know, decades ago. Um, you have a potential audience of 6 billion people. Um, and with that comes, uh, you know, such an immense responsibility. So uh, absolutely, I think there is no question that they have a, a, a responsibility to, to, uh, to take some serious steps to police what's going on in their platforms. So from a broader perspective, how, what do you think is the pathway to our, as a society, sort of refinding the value of truth? And moving from an age where people's acceptance of, of facts or information is predicated on certain emotional attachments they might have to one where, you know, even if we don't agree, we can at least reason with each other from a, a shared uh, set of information and facts. I'm glad you got the how do we find truth question and not me. <laughs> <laughs> Here is the answer. Listen closely. No, uh, it is, it is, it is uh, a question that I think extends you know, far beyond, um, you know, journalism of the courts, right? And I think it really is about changing attitudes. Uh, a lot of what you see these days with um, users gravitating to platforms that some conform to their political views or, or uh, their, their, their worldviews, that's, that's not a new thing, you know. Um, you know uh, in, in the last century, uh, you still had papers that were very much partisan. We are the Republican paper, we're the Democratic paper. And this idea of objectivity or neutrality in newspapers is, is still a, a relatively recent development, only over the past hundred years or so. So, so this idea of, of partisanship and of news outlets catering their news to specific audiences, Democratic audiences, Republican audiences, that's been happening for a while. I think what we see now is, is it's just so much easier to do that because of the digital age, because of social media. Uh, you don't have to go to the newsstand or seek out uh, these things in a 
in a, a real active way. They'll often come to you through your feed on, on Facebook or, or on Twitter. So, so, you know, it really is, as I said, you know, about us beginning to move to a place where people are willing to step outside their comfort zones, uh, where they're willing to conform, consume forms of media that don't necessarily uh, align with their political viewpoints. Um, I think that's something that, you know, we all should be doing. I subscribe to, to uh, three or four newspapers, but I'm dipping into many, many others uh, constantly. So I'm um, trying to make sure I get a, a real three-dimensional perspective on, on what's happening in the news. And I think that's essential for all of us these days to, in order to stay informed. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you what you thought about Section 230 and kind of the ramifications of a potential repeal or why you think that should be in place um, in the sphere of journalism. Yeah, it goes back to, to that question about stewardship, right, um, and about responsibility. And I think a lot of the criticisms uh, of those guidelines are really um, grounded in the perception of whether or not those platforms are policing themselves in an effective way. Um, you know, you're vulnerable to um, attacks uh, if you don't apply standards consistently, right? Um, you know, when, when President Trump was suspended, uh, you know, many folks asked, what, what took them so long, you know? Um, and, and as Professor Hall said, these commercial entities will protect their business interests. Uh, there was one estimate that found that uh, the president was worth about $2 billion to Twitter just in having that connection between their platform and his name. Uh, and how often you would see stories pop up in the New York Times and the Washington Post over the past four or five years connecting the president tweeted today. Um, so, so it is important, I think, um, uh, for these platforms to, to recognize uh, you know, just what's at stake here uh, and, and that it is more uh, than just uh, dividends. It's more than just their market cap. Uh, they have uh, the power to, to really um, uh, affect and, and, and shape democracy uh, and when you have that, that kind of power, you want to make sure that you are, are certainly uh, cognizant of, of it and that you, you use it in a responsible way. I have one more question, and I want to open it up uh, to both of our guests. Um, I want to know, you're both educators at a higher education institution of Notre Dame that really prides itself on educating the whole person. So what do you see as your responsibility in and outside of the classroom in terms of teaching your students about issues of of free speech and truth and ethics and and how these issues or, or values run into social media. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, for for a long time uh, when I came to the university four years ago, um, a lot of our students were discouraged from using social media, and and uh, I, I think that there was a feeling that we want to focus on 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 some other aspects of, of what journalists do, or that it somehow is in conflict with the rest of what we hope to teach our students here at the university. Uh, I really have placed an emphasis on students engaging with it and engaging with it in a really critical way, right? Uh, to, to recognize that uh, it is okay to be ambivalent about it. It's okay to think that it is sometimes incredibly problematic. Uh, but I think if you want to be a journalist, you have to be engaged in that platform in some way. You have to be aware of the conversation even if you're not taking part in it. Uh, and, and, you know, for our students, I always tell them that they have a, a really distinctive position because of the education they're getting, here, right? Um, you know, they can bring what they've learned into those spaces, right? Uh, wanting to be a force for good, right? Wanting to, to use their talents as communicators to promote greater understanding and, 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 and build this sense of, of, uh, of working toward the public good and, and making sure that you're moral compass is pointed in the right direction. You can do all of those things in those spaces. You can bring your education from this great university to bear 
on those platforms. So, so I really encourage them to do that. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the ways that we may be able to really begin to, to help change attitudes, even in a, in a, in a small way uh, um, on, on, on some of these channels. I think that, uh, I think I, I view it as there are, there's a narrow responsibility as an educator and there's a broad responsibility. And the narrow responsibility is to try to arm our students with the facts, uh, the knowledge, the skills to navigate the world. And, you know, one of the simplest things I like to repeat to my students in free speech classes, remember the freedom of speech only applies to government officials precisely because of how many people in popular discourse misstate that claim or, or either willfully um, misstate it or seem to misunderstand it themselves. And it reminds me of, I always want to pull my hair out when people start talking about, well, what did Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams think about the Constitution? They were in Europe when it was being written. They had nothing to do with it. They got mailed a copy. Those kind of little things I like to hammer into my students. But that kind of narrow education isn't as important as the broader education, which is in short to teach our students to be critical thinkers in the more formal way to apply the scientific method to their lives, but in a more casual way to be children of the enlightenment that demand reason and evidence uh, and are skeptical of the sway of emotion in reaching decisions. And that's not an easy thing to do, but that's the only way we're gonna progress as a society. It's easy to point to some new technological development or social development like Twitter and say, oh, there, there is the source of our woes as a society. I remember it makes me think of a line from the play Inherit the Wind, lamenting the horrible social consequences of the telephone, the new invention at the time, I'm sure, Whenever someone invented the newspaper, someone lamented the horrible woes that will come from that to our society. But at the end of the day, the problem isn't with the technology. It isn't with anything that simple. It's a deeper problem of citizens to uh, fail, citizens' failure to reason. And we need a public that will look at any claims with skepticism and demand evidence rather than be swayed by emotion. And that's not something that's easy to do, but that's the broader goal of a liberal arts education. Thank you very much for those insights. Yeah, thank you both so much for being here today and for championing this conversation on our university's campus. We're so lucky to have you. Um, we want to give you an opportunity for any closing remarks and maybe if you wanted to plug your own social media, we won't stop you. <laughs> I'll just say thank you for uh, bringing up this conversation and, and highlighting it to students. It's certainly a great service. And the last thing I want undergrads doing is reading my social media posts. So I'll, I'll pass on the plug. That's great and, and, and same. I just wanna thank you for the invitation, an incredibly important conversation to have. And it's great that you guys are doing this. I'll uh, just uh, publicize the Twitter account for our program. Uh, at ND underscore Jed, at ND underscore JED. Um, a lot of the work of our students is there and that certainly is worth seeing, but, but like Professor Hall said, you don't need to look at my post necessarily, but, but their work is fantastic. Thank you both, really appreciate this. Thank you very much. To wrap us up, ND Votes would love to thank the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, the Constitutional Studies Minor, 
and of course, ND Student Media for their support in production of this podcast. We would also like to once more thank our wonderful guests, Professors Matt Hall and Richard Jones for joining us today. As always, students, ND Votes reminds you to register to vote, check your local election uh, resources for upcoming election information, and request your absentee ballot using the link on our website and or in our Instagram bio. Also, be sure to check out the other voter education resources on the ND Votes website. Your vote matters. Get political. 